Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. I have the incredible job of interviewing geniuses from around the world about the trend shaping the way we live and work. This episode is dedicated to my dad, Tim McPherson. When I was a kid, my dad would take me to pro hockey games where I got to see today's guest, Lou Nanny, play. Lou is a member of the Hockey Hall of Fame who played, coached, and served as general manager for the Minnesota North Stars. Lou and I met over the lunch hour at his Tavern 23 restaurant near Minneapolis to discuss the leadership necessary to create a championship pro sports team and how that leadership applies to other businesses. To prepare for this interview, Lou recommended I read the book, No One Wins Alone by hockey great Mark Messier. Lou and I referenced that book, Messier, and his longtime teammate, Wayne Gretzky, in our conversation. 12 Geniuses is brought to you by Inspire Software, an employee-centric platform that merges impactful, proven leadership and performance models with the tools, resources, and support that your people need to thrive. Learn more at InspireSoftware.com. Lou, welcome back to 12 Geniuses. Thank you. Nice to be here. Let's start with ownership. I know that there's not a template because everybody would copy the template if there was for building a, uh, a championship team, but you've been watching pro sports for 60 years. What have you seen is required from ownership to build a winner? Well, I think, uh, I, and I really feel strongly about this because one of the real good books I read was Dynasty about Bob Kraft and uh, Belichick and their team there. But I really believe that uh, the good owners, the smart owners, the championship owners are the ones that feel very strongly about giving control over to the people that they pick to run the team. Uh, they, they're going to have input and they should have input as owners, but they do defer to the people that are in the business, that know the business and the people that they've committed their club to and they have to trust. So trust is a big factor. Uh, belief in the people you hire and a willingness to let the people that you hire do the job. That's not to say that you can't be involved. You should be involved. You got all your money involved in it. But you have to, when push comes to shove, realize that you hired them to be the decision makers and you have to let them do that. And how does that hiring process of the general manager, let's say the owner hires the general manager generally, how does that hiring process work out? Well, that you can't just say that there's one way for it to work out because everybody's got their own feelings about how they pick people, how they interview people, what they expect from the interviewee, uh, what, what part of it uh, comes into play as far as recommendations they've had for these people or personal input from maybe some other close friends, members of the family that know some of the people that they're interviewing. There's so many things that come into play. It's got to be the same way, I think, that the people that have made their money to be able to afford a sports team have made those right decisions. And they had to do a lot of interviewing in that process and using their gut feel and their knowledge to make the selections that they think is going to be right for them. You had mentioned that uh, an owner of a winning team is going to let the people he or she hires run the team. So you do see occasionally owners serving as the general general manager of the team, and that doesn't seem to work out all the time. Why do they do that? Ego gets into play, and there's no doubt about that, you know. And if you just look at what's transpired, and I want to say this in football, that never used to happen before. 
Uh, and now people commit a lot of money to buying a football franchise. And you see so many owners down by the bench when their team's winning at the end of the game, you know. Uh, and that rubs me a little wrong. You don't see them down there when they're losing the game at the end. And and uh, I had the good fortune of working with what I think are the best owners uh, that I know in professional sports were the Gun Brothers. And and uh, they, they wouldn't be swayed by anything. They had their own thoughts and their own feelings about how they wanted to operate, but they wouldn't have them compromised by anybody else. And they, they went with what they thought was the right thing to do. And the one thing they always did, I mean, I had a lot of times that uh, they asked me, uh, Louis, do you mind if I say, come down to the locker room after the period? I mean, after the game, never came down after a period. And I can come down there. I said, you own a team. You can do anything you want. But they just felt it was only right to ask me as a general manager permission to come into the locker room to say hello to the players. I said, the players love seeing you. Anytime you feel that you'd like to come down and talk to them, I really believe you should because they they are, you know, your employees. But more than that, they look up to you. And these, these gun brothers were just, wonderful people besides wonderful owners. So I was very happy that uh, they operated that way. Talk about the role of the general manager in building a winner. What do they do and what do they not do? Well, a general manager is in charge of acquiring the roster, the players. And uh, they don't do that single handily. They they get a staff of scouts, of, of, of people, uh, the coaches. Everybody has input as to the, the needs of a team. But more than that, they they also have input into the type of players that are on the market, whether free agents or if you're going on a draft and you got your scouting department and, and he's got to oversee everything, trust the people that he's hired and and take the, the, the uh, information that they give him to make his decisions, to make his selections or signings that he thinks is going to improve the ball club. What's the relationship like between the GM and the coach? How do they collaborate in terms of selecting the talent that's going to be on the team? Many things will come into play. One will be whether the general manager feels strong enough that, you know, he's going to be the decision maker with the input he's got, or he might be uh, not as strong-willed and coach might be a lot stronger than him and in uh, mindset and might be able to, uh, you know, get his selections uh, over what the general manager might make by persuading the general manager. But it really should be a collaboration of of trust between the two, which we need. But at the end of the day, by rights, when you run an organization, general manager should be the one making the decision. That's his job. You know, I have a saying that do your job. Whatever your job is, do your job. If you're a winger, you know, he plays a wing. Your defenseman, you play as a defense. Goaltender plays, a, and that goes to all the sports different positions, but do your job. And I think that carries over into management, coaching, scouting, whatever it is. You, you can you can add to the decision-making process, but you're there specifically to do your job first. You have to be able to do your job and want to do your job and know that your job is important to the success of the organization. So you have to do it the best of your ability. Is there any sort of competencies that general managers, winning general managers typically have? Are they good listeners? Do they 
rely on their their scouts, their staff? Uh, what what separates the best from the average? There's not one way to get it done. I'll, I'll name you three general managers. Sammy Pollock, who was maybe the best general manager of all time in hockey. Montreal Canadiens, what did he win? 25 Stanley Cups or something, or a lot of them, you know, at least 15 along the way. Then then you got Bill Torrey with the Islanders. And then I'll say Glenn Sather with the Edmonton Oilers. Now, just look at the three guys. They couldn't be any more different. You know, as individuals, as people, capabilities. Uh, Glenn Seether was played in the NHL. Tory didn't, but he played in college. Pollock didn't, but he worked. You know, as a as a manager. So there are three completely different individuals, but they they had the ability to construct an organization. They had the ability to work with and motivate people. They had the ability to know which knowledge they had to use and not use. So. You, you can't say there's a cookie-cutter way of doing it in anything, just like there wouldn't be in business. There's some core principles I'm sure they all have, but but it's it's going to be varied, and that's why you have different type of teams, and that's why you have different type of winners. You know, if, if you took, there's 32 teams in the NHL, you took 32 teams to put all the players in the NHL together right now and have them draft or you'd see a completely different, you know, set of, of teams than you will now, you know, different thoughts. And it'd be interesting to see who would come out on top and who wouldn't, you know, so. That would be interesting. <laughs> Put the GMs in a, in a room and have them play fantasy hockey. You know, I sat at a table of general managers after we were at our, our, our general manager meetings and we were in uh, Palm Beach at the PGA Club. We had dinner, and uh, Roby Bichon says, come on, guys, uh, I'm buying the drinks. We're gonna so 12 of us, when we sat down, we're talking about all different things. I'll never forget this, because somebody said, okay, if you're starting an NHL team right now, and you had anybody you want in the history of hockey as your first pick, who would you get? You know what the result was? And I, I can guess, but... Six Gretzky, six Orr. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. So right there, right there, it's so different. You know, you got a, the all-time greatest forward, the all-time greatest defenseman, and six took one, six took the other, and who's seen which, they're each saying that's the greatest player. And you know what's remarkable? And you could sit down today and put another 12 guys there, and I wouldn't be surprised if Mario Lemieux came into play in one of those, you know, because a six-foot-five dominating forward like he was, and it all depends on the time of the game, the league, the style and stuff. So it's really, it's really different. On winning teams, what is the role of the coach? What is, what does the coach do well to lead their team to, you know, a, a, a long run in the playoffs? Well, first and foremost, he gets the most out of the players to play together. And how do they do that? All different ways. If people got to trust the coach, you got to believe in them. The coach got to have a the knowledge and good eye is how is he going to get the most out of the players? How is he get the most out of playing certain players against the opposition's players? Uh, how does he motivate players? When you look at, you know, I, I don't know what it is. And I'm, I, I don't know of anybody that knows, but if you say how many games in a year does a coach affect? 
that would it's relatively less than you think. It's more setting up the team to play as a team, getting at most of their abilities, but how many games will he motivate them or I'll think the other person to get the most out of it? I don't know. If I was to guess, I'd say, for instance, an NHL's got 82 game schedule. I'd say if he could do it eight or 10 games, that's a lot. That's huge. That's huge. Yeah. That's 16 to 20 points. Can he do that much? So that's how, that's how tight this whole thing is. So there's their strategy, which you kind of hit on and they have to be competent there. And that, builds the trust of the players. Um, there's motivation and preparation. I would imagine those are elements that are really important. What sorts of roles does the coach play in terms of creating a culture, whether it's in the locker room? Because that, that was one of the things that I found interesting in the Messier book, No One Wins Alone, is that he talked about culture. I didn't expect him to be talking about culture. So what, what is the role of the coach in creating that culture? Coaches, the coach is big. The coach is large in creating the culture because he's uh, essentially telling you what he wants the locker to be like, the way he's handling this player, and and uh, the way he affects his players, and the way he maybe maybe generates uh, enthusiasm for his beliefs in the players by how he's directing them, how he's handling them, how he's able to pull things out of them. He's he's central to it, but he's not the only one in it because the players have to have a big part. Everybody's got to buy in. They all have to start having the same beliefs, the same willingness to do what it takes to win. And and a lot of that comes from the interaction between the coach and the players and the players amongst themselves. I would imagine setting expectations is really important and then holding people accountable. Can you talk about that a little bit? Like setting expectations going into the season, this is how we're going to do things. And then when people don't do it, you know, holding them accountable. One of the things that uh, Glenn Sonmore coached for us, and I really loved working with him. Glenn was with me all the 10 years that I was with the North Stars and he coached probably seven years of that. Um, you know, it's it's getting the trust of the players, getting them to understand that and he had a scene that I love. You can play like that, just not here. You know, so getting people to understand what's expected of them. Uh, he, he was very fiery. Uh, he, you had to watch how you handle him. Like Glenn, Glenn was the type of guy that after a game, he'd be so emotional, and, you know, well, you got to trade this guy, trade this guy. So I had a rule that you never asked me to trade a player after a game, sleep on it, we'll come back the next day and talk about it. And when we went to play in the finals against New York Islanders, we had the first game, he and I were having lunch, and I wrote all these names on a piece of paper, 14 or 15 of them. So what do you think of these guys? What do you mean? They're all our players. Yeah. What can you tell me about them? Well, you, you know them. You watch them on here. I said, well, I can tell you one time or other, you asked me to trade every one of those guys during the year, and they're all playing tonight. <laughs> <laughs> so, you, you know, you have to manage emotions. And I can understand how a coach gets emotional right during a game and after a game. Because if I, when I coached, I would too. And and so you, you all have to look at at what you're trying to eventually end up with and find out, How's the best way for each of us to contribute to getting there? 
and and having the people buy into you can't you can't push a person up a ladder, but you can you can convince them to walk up the ladder. You can motivate them to walk up the ladder. You, you know, motivation is not getting people, uh, you know, making them do what you want them to do. It's getting people to want to do what you want them to do. And and that's the same thing about building a willingness inside a locker room, whatever it is, to to eventually come together with the kind of culture you're trying to derive. Were you part of the the North Stars team that uh, fought the uh, Boston Bruins in the, was it? I was general manager. You were general manager. Yeah, then. but okay. we set was that up. 82? Yeah, but we, no, it was 81. We set that up in the last game in Boston. North Stars came in the league in 67. And we only played there twice a year, but from 67 to 81, we never won a game in there. We beat them a, a lot of times in Minnesota. We never won a game in there. So it was the day of the game, and uh, I was in Victoria, British Columbia. And I always talked to Glenn, the coach, in the day of the game. And Nunaris says to me, Louis said, you know, it looks like we're going to play Boston in the first round. I said, right. He said, is it okay if we, if we make a statement tonight? It's the perfect time. Go right ahead. So we're three hours different. I'm in Victoria, British Columbia. The game's in Boston. The end of the first period, I come down. That game started at 730. It was eight o'clock, and Bart Bradley, who was a pro scout, uh, I mean, the amateur scout head of the Boston Bruins, says, Louis, you got to score in our game. I said, it's not over yet. He says, you crazy? He said, three hours difference. It's 11 o'clock there. I says, no, it's going to be a long one tonight. <laughs> and it was. <coughs> Excuse me. Our guy started, Bobby Smith started the fight at seven second mark, and I think we ended up with, maybe we had five guys on the bench, and they had six. Or something. Everybody else got through another game, but but it was a long one. But that told Boston, "Look, we'll play you any way you want to play." And then we went in there in the first round. We won both games in there. Came back and put them out here in Minnesota. So we just uh, you know went undefeated against them in the first round. That changed a lot of things. How did the the players pick up on that? The the, the coach and the general manager are giving them license to to bully these guys around. Well, Glenn did a masterful job of telling them, look, these guys feel like they can beat you or think they can beat you because they think they're, they're tougher, tougher than you. And you, you guys might be afraid to play in here and that let's show them right now. We're tougher than you are. Now we might not win the game, but we're going to win the war. And that's the attitude that Glenn had them go with. And that's what they did. And eventually we won from that time on. You know, uh, they're, they're telling them, we'll play it any way you want to play. You want to skate, you want to hit, you want to fight, we'll do whatever you want. Hockey and basketball and baseball, these are really unique sports because you're together for a long, long time. And you're, you know, you're traveling together. You're spending dozens and dozens of nights in hotels. How does the coach get these guys to like each other enough so they don't kill each other? Well, you have to understand, and it's not just those three sports. Any team sports like that. And I and I used to tell our team at the beginning of the year, look, you guys in here are our team. I don't expect you to go to dinner with each other every night. I don't expect you to love everybody every day. I said, if you're married and, and, and your wife, you never go through life without an argument or disagreement, stuff like that. So it's going to happen. That's just part of life. But while you're in the locker room, while you're on the ice, that's your brother. That's 
you live and die for. That's your team. Nothing comes between you. After that, I don't care. You don't want to go out together. You don't want to like each other. You don't want to, you know, see each other. That's fine. But once the puck is dropped or once the baseball thrown or once the football thrown or basketball, whatever it is, you got to know that you're, you're together. That's, this is my family. You are a family and nothing breaks up a family. That's the kind of attitude you have to say. That's the bottom line. The underlying thing is nothing breaks us apart. What about mid-season trade? So we talked a little bit about culture and then you, you know, the trade deadline is always big in sports and you hear about this, you know, a lot in baseball, not necessarily football, but I'm sure it's big in hockey. It's big in basketball as well. How disruptive is that to that culture and the people or the teams that are making these trades are typically doing it to sell assets or to put the, add a piece to win a championship. And I'm just curious, how does that work out and, or does it not? Two things are most important. One, the culture inside the team and the strength of it. Two, the type of individual that's coming in there and the willingness to accept that and understand it and, and fall into it. So that you can't determine, you can't predetermine unless you really know the individual you're getting real well and, and any of their shortcomings and strengths, stuff like that. You try and learn all you can, but I don't think it's even possible to do it unless you might have somebody in your staff that was on the same uh, team that this individual might've been with. So it's always a gamble. And that's something that you have to take into account when you're making the move. Yeah. So if you've got a really tight locker room and that, that makes it a lot easier for that player to either be come in and, and accept what the culture is like and be like the rest of them, or if he's not, uh, the team's got to be strong enough to, to weed them out. In other words, not let them disrupt the culture that's in there. And do you lean on the players to do that? Yeah, that's got to be all players for the most part. You know, you as, uh, a coach or you as a general manager, anytime you can help that individual, the individual coming in fit more into that team structure. If there's things or ways you can do that, you, you, you should do that. But the real strength is going to come from that bond, that team culture that already exists. And how important is player leadership throughout the season? Because we've talked about owners, GMs, coaches, but it, on a championship team, do you have to have one or two leaders who are going to step up and be the alphas? Oh, I, I just think that just naturally exists. You, I don't know what the number is, but there's always going to be some that are really the leader or leaders in, in the locker room. Many times the, the, the guy that's really maybe even the best leader doesn't wear the captain's seat. But he's he's a leader, you know. He's the leader, and and uh, the individuals in the locker room know and look to those individuals or individual to lead them. They really they really feel good about the person that's their leader, if he's a good one, and and uh, have the willingness to to follow and understand what that individual is trying to accomplish. There's a a term. In, in psychology called pro-social behavior, I've just learned this term this year, and you'll understand exactly what it is. 
Uh, it's, it's basically convincing a, a player to do what's right for the team, not necessarily what's best for him or her. So instead of being a 40 point or a 40 goal scorer, we want you to do some of the more nasty work, work in the corners. You're going to score 32 goals, but the team's going to win. How do coaches get that pro-social behavior, that sacrifice, individual statistics, individual accolades for the benefit of the team? First of all, the coach has to build up a rapport with the players where they trust him, understand what he's trying to accomplish and how he's trying to accomplish it. Uh, secondly, the individual himself or herself has to know that this is really important, that what they're asking of that person, it's important for them to do it because this is the way the, the team is structured and, and they should be able to see or believe that that way is going to be the best way for the team. Uh, as I was saying before, do your job, whatever that job is. You know, um, there's another scene I use all the time. A guy comes in the league as a crusher. He scores two goals. He's a, a rusher. And the next thing you know, he ends up an usher because he quit doing his job and he wouldn't do what is expected of him. And that's the same thing here. That when, when they say, we need you to do this and this, that's the way you're going to add the most to the team. That's the way you're going to be successful as an individual and for the team. Why do you think it's so difficult for a championship team to repeat? In this day and age, no matter what sport you're talking about, you've got free agency. And, and uh, once you have free agency, you know, it's going to disrupt the, new, disrupt the nucleus of that team. Uh, there aren't many guys or women to want to play for less one place than they would in somewhere else. You know, they, they want to maximize their earnings as well. They think this is what I devoted my life to. This is my opportunity. I got to be recognized for what I contribute. And you might take a hometown discount a bit, but it's not overly significant. Many times the other teams are willing to overpay because they, they see a greater value to their team than you might really be. Is there any role that the other staff within the organization play in, in building a championship? Do they have oh, to yeah. have? So t talk about that a little bit. I'm, and how do, you, how do you describe them? I want to tell you, if you look at Messi's book and, and look at some of the things that affected their team, the way Gristy handled the, the kid with the... Yes. Basically a learning disability. disability yeah. And... and but not only that, the trainer. If you look at our team, the North Stars, how close Doc Rose was with the trainer, with the players, the trainers. And if you look at, I can only speak from the NHL point of view, but if you look at the way the NHL teams, I mean the players, not the, not the ownership, the players value the, the trainers that they have. And at the end of the year, how well they take care of these guys because they are so important to the culture to the physical, uh, you know, readiness of the players, uh, to the atmosphere, the the bond building between players, they affect all that. I, I think that that's, in my mind, one of the most underlooked things I know that people don't realize in, in hockey, and I'm sure it exists in the other team sports, how valuable these other people are. You 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 look at this day and age, uh, the traveling secretaries, for instance, you, you know, uh, 
I, I look at Andrew with the Wild and I, and how, how well he does his job and how he makes it uh, so much more comfortable for the players and their travel and things you have to do. There's so many parts of the organization that really affect the overall team culture that people have no idea that it exists. That's why it's very important. When, when I said at the beginning, owner has to pick the people that he can to run the organization and let them do it. And that, that goes all the way down the general manager, you know, the, the marketing executive, the uh, broadcast, whatever it is. And they got to pick their helpers and their co-workers, et cetera, all the way down. A team, when they talk about a team, they don't just talk about the players. They better be talking about the whole team, the whole organization, because it all affects the product on the ice or court or floor or baseball field or what have you. Yeah, that was remarkable in, in the Messier book, uh, the, talking about the trainer and how revered the trainer was and how protected by the other players, by the players he was. And then anybody new to the organization sees that. And then they see those behaviors and they're like, oh, this is how we act here. This is how we behave. This is this person's untouchable. I can't just leave my stuff on the ground or, you know, disrespect them. Well, I've seen instances where the trainer goes up to the player and says, we don't do that in this team. We don't do that. That's how you do this. I mean, the trainer takes takes the initiative to set some individual straight that just comes in there. So it, it's it's very, very important part of the overall uh, culture, structure, camaraderie, what have you. When you see a great coach, how do they deal with when a player has made a mistake or has failed? Nowadays, coaches have to have a different demeanor than they had in the past. In the past, you'd, they'd really rub your nose in it. They'd, they'd beat you down. They'd intimidate you, whatever. Nowadays, this, and it's the world, the way we are, everything's changed. And it, and obviously, I, I think it's evolved into a better area than we used to be because now the coach has to be acting like a psychologist. You have to be sure that while you're pointing out the mistakes or the failures or inability to do some things, you also have to do it in a way that in no way will deter from then being confident enough to do it again. You you gotta you have to handle that guy or, or girl in a way that they they believe in you. They know that they made a mistake, but they more is expected of them, and they're capable of doing it. So you 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 maintain a relationship where the, in, the player knows you, the, the coach got confidence in your ability to do this right, and he's not gonna or she's not gonna in any way pull you out of the line or sit you on the bench or whatever because of a mistake. I, I have a saying that says, well, last guy that didn't make the mistakes on the cross, we're all <laughs> going to make mistakes. So you got to expect it. And, and there was one team and they had this, and I can't remember which one it was, but years and years ago, I heard about it. Don't be afraid of making a mistake. As you go out in the ice at a time, don't be afraid of making a mistake. And if you think about it, you know, batting champs are out two-thirds of the time. Michael Jordan might miss six shots in a row, but if the game's on the, line, on the line, he wants to take the last shot. So the game's on the line is a tight game. Gretzky wants to be in the ice. You know, it's, 
you have to have that self-belief, whether you're a star or not, that you're capable of performing in a tight situation. And that's what makes the great players great. They want to show that they're the ones that can do the job and they do it. That was such an incredible gesture when the Edmonton Oilers won the the cup after they had lost it, when Gretzky handed the the cup to the player who'd made a, a mistake the previous year. I don't know if you Steve, remember that yeah, story. I don't yeah. remember who the player Steve was. Schmidt. He put the puck in his own net when they were playing Calgary. Yeah. And that yeah. was the deciding yeah. goal. Yeah. And it, just an unbelievable, uh, courageous leadership moment from, from him. Not only courageous leadership, how thoughtful and how... How touching is it that he, Gretzky, had the wherewithal to think about that and what was really important? This is something you're going to recognize right now. You're on a championship team, and you are a big part of it, and I want you to have the cup right now. I, that was remarkable, but that's why that team had such a great bond. When I'm talking about all those great championship teams, when you win three in a row, you win four in a row, even five or whatever it was Edmonton Islanders Canadians, there is there is a feeling of oneness in there, and that just exemplified it. All of these things that we've talked about today—leadership and ownership, general managers, coaches, players, their leadership roles—how do they apply to business? Because you've been in business for a long time as well. When you look at it, sports is a business. Business got to be the same way. The leaders got to. Try and establish a culture amongst you. I just, we just talked about that. I'm in a financial business and the team's got to be a team. Like, and I talk to our individuals like they're a sports team because the same principles apply of being together, wanting, wanting to succeed as a unit, wanting to help the individual working with you out, accepting any mistakes and don't berate them for failure, encouraging them that they, they can do it right, understanding that no one in this organization is going to be able to do this alone. There's, there's a lot of people that you have to depend on to get your job right. So I, there's, there's really no difference. It's, it's, it's having the same kind of attitude that you'd have if you're a sports team. You, you realize the value of your fellow employees, your fellow teammates, and you realize the importance of, of helping them do their best and how important it is for them to help you do your best. I, I, you can't really separate them because when you come right down to sports as a business, you know, you, when, when it's reported, they report like a business. You make money, you lose money. You got expenses, do I, you got to cut them. You, you, you do the same, you, you effectively run a, 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 an athletic team like you would run a financial team or, uh, uh, any kind of organization you want, a marketing team, a serial company, whatever it is, we all have to have the same kind of principles to be successful. Yeah, I think that's so true and talent helps, but talent isn't the only thing. You have to have organization, you have to have alignment from the bottom of the organization all the way through the top. One needless point to make is you, the more talent you have, the better success you can have if they all, if we're seeing all things are equal, the way they work with one another, the way they perform, et cetera. Uh, there's, there's no substitute for talent. You know, you can't say 
okay, there's a, a great hockey player that uh, can skate past and shoot. We're going to find somebody that uh, we want to do the same as he's doing, but that guy has, you know, can't skate. So if you can't get there, you know, you can't get there, you can't play in the National League. If you can't skate, you can't play. It's very simple. So an un unwritten rule, anything we talk about is, yeah. bottom line is, talent is irreplaceable. You have to have talent. You, know, you have to have knowledge. You can't be an accountant and not know any math. It's very simple. Yeah, there's a there's a metaphor I use that two guys are in a canoe and they're they're the best rowers, the best strongest paddlers out there. But if they're pointed in the in opposite directions, the boat's not going to go anywhere. Exactly. <laughs> and so, well, Lou, I really appreciate your time today. Thank you again for joining us, and thank you for being a genius. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses and thanks to Inspire Software for sponsoring this week's episode. We'll be back next week when I interview Tom Fishman, CEO of Starts With Us, about the work his organization is doing to bridge the extreme political and cultural division in America. Thanks to Richard Jonathan J. Tony and the rest of the team at GL Pro in London for producing this show. To subscribe to 12 Geniuses, please go to 12geniuses.com. Thanks for listening. And thank you for being a genius.